The Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe plug-in hybrid is built for the best of both worlds. For the city buzz, for the call of the wild, for finding solitude, for sharing memories, for day trips, and for far-roaming adventures. Because with gas and electric capability, the Jeep Grand Cherokee 4xe inspires you to explore more, to explore it all. Tap the banner to learn more. Jeep is a registered trademark of FCA US LLC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, this is Pacey and Pacey. I'm sorry, guys. It's just me because Maisie isn't lionessing this time. She is skiing because she's good at lots of sports. So this week, you've got just me, but don't worry. It's not just me. I wouldn't do that to you. You can't just have me talking about football for half an hour, can you? I have got the brilliant Suzanne Rack, who has written a fantastic book called A Women's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football. And that is coming up in just a minute. I need to do my broadcast a bit, don't I? As you know, there were no games in the WSL this week, but there was plenty of WOSO, that's women's soccer, in the FA Cup. So let me tell you about that. Right, let's get my broadcaster voice ready. Leicester City 6, Birmingham City 2. Tottenham Hotspur 1, Charlton Athletic 0. Arsenal 0, Manchester City 1. Wolverhampton Wanderers 1, Brighton Hove Albion 4, Seagulls! Chelsea 1, Crystal Palace 0, London Lionesses 0, Liverpool 2, Southampton 1, Manchester United 3, and Nottingham Forest 1, Everton 7. So, I'm going to mention a couple of games. Uh, I'll mention one for Maisie as well. Now, of course, I've got to talk about the Brighton game. It was brilliant. It was brilliant to finally get a result. Having lost to Aston Villa earlier in the week on penalties in the League Cup, I don't know if anyone... Saw that penalty shootout, but it was not ideal for anyone. There was finally some good news for Brighton. Um, understudy or, you know, someone that's just come off the bench. Emma Kulzberg's late hat trick secured Brighton's win. Uh, there was also a goal from Katie Robinson in the first half. Kulzberg hadn't schooled for Brighton since joining in January 2022 and broke that deadlock in the 88th minute with a close range tap in. She scored two more goals within eight minutes. So big shout out to Emma Kulsberg and of course our friend Robbo. Now the other game that I watched which I was shouting at my telly I don't mind telling you. Now let's let's quickly talk about Kiara Keating. She is Phenomenal. Yes, she's a big kick energy favourite. You know that we love her, but she was on fine form. It was the Arsenal Man City game. City secured their place in the quarterfinals with a goal by Leah Alexandri. 
It is the second time in a row that the Gunners have lost to a rival WSL team at this tournament stage. Last year, they lost to Chelsea. So the FA Cup quarterfinal ties occur on Saturday the 9th of March and Sunday the 10th of March. In the Scottish Premier League, Rangers drew 0-0 with Patrick Thistle, while second place Celtic beat Hibernian 3-1. Celtic are now only four points behind the leaders, Rangers. So, a few weeks ago, one of our brilliant listeners recommended that we tuck into an award-winning book called A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football by Suzanne Rack. And not only have I tucked into this book, I am loving it, but Suzanne has kindly agreed to join me on the show today. Hello, thanks so much for chatting to me. Hello, this is very exciting. I'm very glad to be on. Well, I was saying just before we started recording, we sort of have to pretend that we've just started recording, but we have said hello because, you know, we're normal people, that I was saying how much I'm loving this book because I think lots of our listeners have come to the sport like me a bit later as an adult and have sort of, we're now sort of working out who our teams are and wanting to sort of dive into a bit of the history. And your book is just such a, it's a great gateway into the history of it, but also sort of what's going on at the moment. It feels very of the moment. That's exactly what I wanted it to be because I didn't want it to just be a really stale history book. Mm. Um, I very like the growth of women's football is so dynamic and it's changing Mm. so constantly that I kind of like it would get out of date very quickly. So I wanted it to be a little bit of sort of a manifesto as well and looking at like how we can learn the lessons of the past and take that moving forward because otherwise it's just, you know, like out of date within a second. And I mean, it was and we had to do a reprint with (laughs) the Euros win added in. And, you know, now obviously the World Cup means it's out of date. But, you know, the themes carry on right so like that's the exciting thing and hopefully the bit at the end which is yeah like I say a little bit of a manifesto of what women's football could be or should Mm. look like and not even answering that question but just throwing questions out there is just keeps people's brains thinking and makes them want to engage in like the development of the sport in a way that is a bit more proactive and you know people feel like they can have a role in shaping what it looks like too which I think is quite important when it's something so new. Yeah I totally agree and I think getting that historical stuff the stuff that's come up a lot on our podcast people have written in stories we've had sort of people writing in going my auntie played for this team 45 years ago and you go the history is so recent but feels (laughs) so far away you know when you consider you know what was happening you know 100 years ago which you know Mm. is very recent history to historians but the women's game it still feels very pertinent to what's happening to our female players at the moment yeah, and also like every time women's football has taken off, the end of it hasn't been organic, right? It's been stamped on. Yes, 100%. So the ban in the 1920s ended in the 70s, obviously has been quite widely spoken about around the Euros and the World Cup and mm-hmm. given a bit of context to why women's football hasn't taken off. But then uh, I think it's saying one part of the book that I found out that there was a ban in the really early 1900s as well. So it started to take off. There's a bit of organising sort of around the suffragettes and things, um, seeing football as a bit of a vehicle to like pioneer women's rights. And there was this great team led by this woman, Nettie Honeyball, which was a pseudonym mm. for a, a woman who who wanted to do something about it and genuinely loved football, right, as well, like really was into it as well as seeing as it it as a bit of a political tool mm. and they they started taking off and playing loads of games and they were sort of like a little bit of a well why did this end how how did this why why is there this gap between them playing in the late 1800s early 1900s and then women's football 
picking up again during the the war and then being banned like what happened in between uh surely it didn't just die away and like there's evidence to suggest and it's not strong enough evidence necessarily to say definitively but there was possibly another ban from the fa mm. that was never actually lifted so when it was banned again in 1921 the existing ban was still in place but just no one really knew about it so there's you know that everything women's football wise there's so little evidence of any of it because mm. there was so little records uh yeah. there's so few records taken and stuff so it's a real like minefield as working out what is true and what is you know sort of a little bit written around the edges is really really difficult but it's like important that that stuff is recorded right because otherwise 100%. no one knows it exists whether it existed or not and that's why your book is so brilliant because it really takes that that's where we begin the 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 story Let, let's talk about you to begin with so have you always been into football how did you get into it yeah, so my dad is a massive Arsenal fan and right. also very, very left-wing, uh, like raving socialist. So huh. he was involved in the campaign against ID cards um, in the 90s um, when the Thatcher government wanted to bring in ID cards for football fans. So he was like involved in the Arsenal wing of that campaign. And um, so, yeah, so like quite a progressive dad would consider himself a feminist, like never, ever saw... Um, football was something that wasn't for me and my sister so I was quite lucky in that sense in that I grew up loving Arsenal and he loved that I loved Arsenal in the same way that a dad would a son at that mm. time and we were really lucky because Arsenal ladies at the time played across the road in Shoreditch Park I lived on a council estate in Hoxton and um, they were like training and playing and the players came and leafleted my council estate saying oh we're playing a match on Sunday or whatever it was against Southampton I think and I'll oh, come and watch just come across the road and watch and what age would you have been at this point I must have been like five or six wow you were really little yeah and then so we we wandered across the road we were the only ones who <gasps> went across to watch sat on a bench my dad reading the the newspaper and keeping an eye on the game and me sat there with a little plastic ball watching oh. I was really lucky because I saw I, I mean I was lucky because Arsenal obviously had the dominant um, women's team of the time yeah but like they were they were local and they advertised locally and they came and ran sessions in my school and when we went to the double winning parades in like 98 and stuff we would see the women's team on the bus behind the men's with their trophies too so I didn't really go to games but they were they were around so it was never weird for me that women played football so I was really lucky in that sense in that like my route into women's football was quite a natural one but mm. I also drifted away from it completely when I was a teenager because it just wasn't present. You know, you couldn't watch the games. I didn't know where they were. I wouldn't have travelled to them. So men's football was what I was into. And it was only later on when I started actually writing that I sort of fell back into women's football. Kelly Smith's testimonial was mm -hmm. one of the first things I went to. And then her last game for Arsenal and all those kind of events. And it was yeah, just really exciting and fun to be back in in that world that I had sort of become a little bit divorced from in my teenage years because it just wasn't present. But it was always a thing and I was quite yeah. lucky in that sense. Something that I've really noticed as someone that's got into football sort of quite recently is how accessible it feels to get into the women's game. It's accessible in sort of a monetary way of going to see games, but I really feel like I know the players. I don't know any of the players, but I really feel like I know them. I really care. Like, did you find... Before you were really into the women's game, when you were still sort of more into the men's game, but had like your eye on it a little bit, did it feel like it was sort of a more, I guess, I guess the word is accessible place to be? Definitely. 
when I was in secondary school, I think it was Faye White and Rachel Yankee and possibly one or two others would come into my school and run sessions. It was just, oh yeah, these Arsenal players are coming in and running sessions. It was completely normal. And like I, they were just the coaches that came in and did those sessions. And I had the keep you up record at my school for a little bit, which I was very proud of. Congratulations. Um, yeah, it's the only thing I've ever won uh, <laughs> of any any real meaning to me. Um, wait, this, wait this, this book won an award. <laughs> yeah, I know, I, just, I know, but really keep you up your record. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what matters, you know. <laughs> so they were accessible in that sense. And then when I started going, I mean, what was really great is like my son, who's now 10, like when he was three or four and I was starting to get into watching women's football again and then starting to cover it as well. Like I would take him along to Arsenal women's matches and he would, you know, it cost me like a couple of quid to bring him in. And yeah. he would be able to like run up and down the uh, stands at Boreham Woods, like, or like lean over the hoardings and high five players afterwards. And I got a photo of him with Gunnosaurus and the women's FA Cup and huh. things like that. And that's like in one game. And, yeah. you know, if I take him to the Emirates, it's, a ridiculous amount of money and he's like you know stuck in a seat essentially yeah. for the duration it's not like quite as interactive if there's other kids there he can't like run around and play with them so there's that aspect of it too that's quite nice um and I love the like you know the growing tribalism that's coming in and stuff now I do actually think there's a place for that because that was part of the reason I fell in love with football in the first place was like going to Arsenal games with my dad and hearing him swear and being like oh this is a place where I can swear in chance and stuff and be like yes come on so like, I like that side coming in a bit but I also love that the fact that yeah it's so affordable and like easy for people to take their families and I think that's why men's football has become so grim in that sense is that people can't take their families. So it's naturally become a space where they feel like they can operate in a long set of rules that don't apply when you're in a family friendly environment. Whereas like just naturally that's not happened in the women's game yet because you can afford to take anyone. So yeah. I think it's quite a natural thing, which is really nice. Yeah, it feels so uh, inclusive. Maisie and I both actually live down in Brighton and I quite often take my daughter who's three along to see the seagulls and she loves it I mean she's got no idea what's going on and I have to keep reminding her which one we support even though <laughs> she's wearing the shirt but it does feel it, it feels enormously inclusive and it feels and like when I've been to Wembley to see the lionesses mm -hmm. it feels yeah it feels a lot more sort of not just family friendly but like everyone friendly like every kind of person seems to go along to the women's game in a way that I haven't seen as much of that in the men's game. Do you think that's fair to say? Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's so inclusive. I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, you've got opening gay players as well mm -hmm. and, yeah. you know, you've got fans going to to games very open about their sexuality and really finding a home within within football that they've not in a community that they've not really necessarily been able to find elsewhere that is that inclusive and that accepting, which is a really lovely thing. Yeah. A lot of really kind of nice things that come out from that there's some like fantastic campaign groups the work that they're able to do is really good and I, I, it's it's quite special because there's so few areas of life where you actually get to experience community in the way that you maybe did when we were growing up so mm. like you know I grew up on a council estate in Hackney I knew everyone on the estate they knew me we go down to the park without our parents because the balconies all overlooked the playground and we'd you know play together I got priced out of Hackney and then priced mm. out of Leighton and then priced out of Leighton Stone and now I'm in Walthamstow. 
I think this generation that's renting with constant turnover never really gets to settle into a place and create a community and belong anywhere. A lot of young people that become sort of fans of women's football have almost found a little bit of belonging within the community of football, which I think is really, really a beautiful thing and something that we should still really have at a local level. But the population is so transient and stuff. There's Mm. so few ways of doing that nowadays. But this is a little haven of it in a way. Yeah, I've never considered that. That's such a that's such an interesting and important point. I've really felt that with going down to Brighton now that it is just amazing. Even though every time I go, we get absolutely thrashed. It'd be great if they could get into into actual Brighton as well, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I mean, but that is hopefully on the cards. <laughs> on the cards. I've got a bit of affinity with Brighton actually because oh, my really? uh, yeah, I went to university there, but my grandma also lived there for most of like you know when she was alive all my life. She was on the planning committee and helped get the men's stadium built. So Brighton is very much my second team and she really fought hard for it. So yeah, love Brighton. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, That's really nice. I was going to ask you about this in a little while when we get, when I was going to ask you some questions about what's going on at the news at the moment, but I'm going to skip forward for a second because just you mentioning about homophobia. Mm. I don't know if you saw that Rylan has a documentary coming out called Homophobia, Football and Me because he was raised as like a West Ham fan and I've not seen the documentary yet but I do want to see it and he's you know examining you know why the sport has become so homophobic and I was just wondering you know with all the knowledge that you have and the history that you have at your fingertips I was wondering if you had any sort of insight as to why it's become so inclusive in the women's game like what is that? I think it's like it's hard to say I think there's Mm. a big part of it in that like the fact that women play football, right, and are uh, and the, the people that go into w- watch women play football, there's an innate like progressiveness there because you automatically yeah. see that women belong in in sport, right? So yes. that you know the overwhelming majority of men's football fans when you go into a stadium won't necessarily feel that, although I think that's changed significantly. Mm. So you, there's a level of progressiveness there that I think uh, then. Uh, is it's likely that you're progressive in other ways if you believe that women should play sport and you care about it enough and you believe in the quality of the game enough and understand the context of its development and where it's at and where it could go to be able to physically go to a game then the likelihood of you being not homophobic and not racist is probably quite high so I think that's probably like a big part of it and then as a part of that the fact that you've got so many openly gay players and you know they talk about racism but they still take the knee all of those things I think all of those aspects feed into creating this environment that is very aware of what it means to have to fight for something Mm. (laughs) you know that that understands struggle because you know so many people in there have either had to struggle to play itself or have been denied the right to play for some reason or have had to fight to just be able to get to games and fit around their schedules or whatever it may be there's been some kind of like struggle going on this I think it's automatically attracts a progressive layer of people because you yeah it's a it's an uh, an ideological commitment in the first place to say yeah we we back women's football so I think that's probably the biggest aspect of it but yeah I mean men's football I think it is improving but yeah yeah, I remember going to men's games as a kid and some of the chants I'd be like quite uncomfortable with I was a teenage girl or like a young uh, pre-teen and that's not a nice place to put someone I think it is improving because you see a lot more women at men's games now too but yeah I think that's a big part of why why the women's game is so progressive is it attracts that progressive layer just naturally almost yeah I think you're absolutely right now getting back to your book um what did you 
because you said to me when we got on the call, I said, oh, I'm loving your book. <laughs> and you said, oh, I'm, I'm pleased because it was a real pig to write or something like that. Well, that. That's me putting it in my own language because I'm also trying to write a book at the moment and it's bloody hard work. But did you just have, did you, were you sort of collecting these stories for a while and then thought, well, if there's not a bloody book, I'm going to have to write the bloody book. I, I wasn't. You know, I'd written about a few of them. Right. A few of the historical things I've written about in The Guardian and like, yeah, yeah you know, kind of had touched on but it was actually this agent um my agent max edwards his literary agent um who approached me about doing it and he's an amateur referee as well so he like he's really into football he's refereed some women's games as well as men's games at sort of very very you know bottom level um really nice guy ridiculously enthusiastic and he was very much like the euros is the euros are coming up this was in late 2018 euros coming up in 2021 before COVID hit and pushed it back and there's not a generalised history of women's football I think you should write it and I was like very nice my career is very early (laughs) I am not interested in writing a book at this stage and he was was like Euros is a really good opportunity that book doesn't exist blah blah and I was like "You're, you're making a good point I very much thought like I didn't want anyone else to write it if yeah. I mean that sounds really bad that's a good enough reason that I'm, listen that's a good enough reason for me I think it's because the way I wanted to do it was I, I didn't want it to just be a, an isolated history of women's football like this yeah. happened this happened this happened I wanted it to be contextualized within society more generally like I'm quite political and like I wanted to discuss what was happening in the world and more generally in society at each stage of the development of women's football because that's how you then spot the patterns of its development mm-hmm. you know when the games getting going in the 1900s it's around the suffragettes when it's the 1920s it's the war and why are the women there it's because of the war meaning that the men are off fighting so they're in the factories they play football so I wanted to get all that like political context into it and I wasn't sure if any of the others are sort of around at the time that would do it in the way that I wanted to do it so that's sort of why I did it but yeah it was I mean covid pushed it back as well because it could push back the euro so then my deadline was pushed back a year but that was both a blessing and a curse a blessing yeah. in that I was nowhere near hitting my deadline and a curse in that I had to write it for another year but um yeah I'm pleased with what it's turned into <laughs> after being be. slightly panicked no you should be when you were researching the book were there any like, there's been lots of stories that have come up on the podcast that we've been sort of stunned and shocked and f- infuriated by <laughs> was there any that sort of sticks in your mind that you sort of couldn't believe and thought, right, this has to go in the book? The stuff that really, really surprised me was like the really, really early stuff. Mm. So I had heard about the like Nettie Honeyball and the team in the 1900s. And I'd heard about centuries prior to that, that women had like played informally and in Scotland had played and um, uh, in matches of married and unmarried women to help men pick wives and things like that. I'd, I'd heard about all of that, like very, very loose stories, but I had no idea that when you, because when you track men's football back, it goes all the way back to like China, the Han Dynasty, that kind of stuff, to a game called Cujo, which was like the earliest form of people kicking a ball with their feet, not, you know, association rules as we know them, but like that was like the first examples of people kicking balls. And I, I like the thing that surprised me was that women doing that existed at that time as well. And that the idea that it wasn't just, you know, something that had appeared for men and then had suddenly women had taken it up at some point that there there's it, the evidence that's such a tiny, tiny bit of evidence to suggest it. A few images of, mm. you know, these women dressed in these amazing, like, you know, kind of historic Chinese gear, like paintings 
doing keepy uppies essentially and things like that and then little like references to women watching football as well or Cujo and 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 things like that that really surprised me because I had never ever considered the idea that it went back that far and Mm. that you could trace the earliest roots of someone kicking a ball back to you know women being involved to a lesser extent as well because all of various societal like pressures on women generally but they was even then they were still involved so that was like the like I'd heard a lot of the latest stuff through being a journalist and yes. like kind of writing about things so I'd heard a lot of the things about the 70s and the 60s and like pre the band post the band during the band all of those kind of stuff but it was that really early stuff that I was just like whoa okay I, yeah <laughs> suddenly this book has got a lot a, a much bigger time period to cover which then yeah. became very stressful too <laughs> I think, you know, especially when you, I mean, nobody should be reading the comments on Instagram or Twitter because it is a bin fire. But I think so much of what some blokes, let's be honest, some blokes, not all blokes, but some blokes, it all comes back to sort of the ownership of football. And that was the bit quite early on in your book when I read that about, um, how do you say, is it co Cujo, I think. Cujo, I'm, right. I'm not really sure. Okay. But when I saw that, you go, oh, we got it at the same time. Mm. Like it was, it's always been everyone's. And for me, you know, for a long time, it felt like football was something that belonged to other people. Mm. But if I was going to play, I was going to be oh, the girl that's playing, or I was going to be called a, d- a dyke for playing, mm. or I was going to, you know, I sort of made a conscious effort to not be into football because I was worried about what that would signal about my identity that I didn't want anyone to know about yet. And so that I found that bit, fascinating as well because you just go oh it's always belonged to everyone it's always been something for for all of us but men got their grubby hands on it <laughs> and excluded us as they yeah. do with everything right yeah. like every sector with comedy like every section mm. of society sure. like absolutely we have been journalism you, journalism yeah yeah. yeah yeah i mean especially sports journalism i can only imagine <laughs> exactly yeah exactly that it's um it, i always find it really funny when i get the question i like meet someone new and they say oh what do you do and i say oh, i'm a sports journalist i write about uh women's football and they go oh so do you like football then yeah. and i'm like obviously i would not be in this like ridiculously like uh, male heavy anti-women industry if I didn't like football I have to love football yeah. otherwise why the hell would I be doing this I would go and sit at a desk doing a nice comfy desk job somewhere and yeah like where you know women are a little bit more respected than a new you know a sports new sports journalism newsroom or a press box where you have to squeeze past like the bodies of old uh. men into these tiny press boxes just to get your, to your seat and things like that some of the men's games, some of the men's grounds that I did early on were pretty, pretty grim. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I bet there's a lot of parallels between our industries. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the one that we get uh, is, I don't normally find women funny, but you're funny. <laughs> to which I always think you must, especially when it's a woman, I always think you must have the most boring group of friends because no one makes me laugh more than my female friends. My friends aren't comics. Well, that's the thing is like we get all the time like – Oh, you 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 know football then? Oh, a little look of surprise. Uh, if you if you start talking about a player or 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 it's explain that you understand the offside rule, uh, it's yeah, a, a like imagine. oh oh okay, and it's it's, it's literally my job. Yeah, <laughs> it's my job to know this. So of course I know what it is, and of course I can talk to you about whichever player you know. I can talk to you about how brilliant Declan Rice was yesterday yeah. for Arsenal against Wolfsburg. Like I can I can have those conversations, but there's always no matter how progressive the group of men are, there's a little bit of a tone of surprise when 
they're having a conversation that, that they think, you know, I'm not particularly interested in. And I start chipping in with a few bits and they're like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> just, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that. I can really imagine that. Has it been exciting to be so involved as a journalist in the women's game over the last couple of years? I love it. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. it feels like, and I, I'm sure that you saw, there was uh, something that came out in the press last week about women and girls teams in England that have more than doubled in the last seven years. And it does feel like we're at such an exciting moment. I'm watching so much football at the moment. Like yesterday, me and my daughter watched the Arsenal Man City game. I was at that. Were you? Yeah, and oh. I'm an Arsenal fan, so it was agony, but, you know. Oh. <laughs> me, but Kiara Keating. Oh, oh, stunning. She was just, was just such a good just... story. So good. Yeah. She's just, I mean, I'm so excited for, I feel like we often forget about other brilliant female goalies. Yeah. Because we've got herps. We love herps, you know, and long may it continue. But I saw Hannah Hampton a couple of weeks ago as well. And oh. then Kiara Keating and you go, oh God, we've got a wealth of talent in this country that I'm not aware of because the only lioness that I see in goal is Mary Earps. It's exciting, isn't it? It is. And these ones have had like proper training as well. Whereas like yes. Mary Earps and some of the older ones, Siobhan Chamberlain and, and people like that, they yeah. only started having proper goalkeeper coaching from like when they were sort of in their early 20s. Whereas these young ones, and there's Emily Ramsey, who's injured at the minute, but it's Everton, who's right. really great. Um, a lot of these young England goalkeepers, Sophie Bagley has been brilliant, that are so much better technically because they've had that training from a younger age. And it's just yeah. it's just so great to see. It's so good. But yeah, being involved, it's it's been brilliant. And I, I'm really lucky because I, I, I never... I started off doing men's football journalism, but what like I once I started doing women's football, it was no, there was no looking back because that's what I like doing. So I don't see it as a stepping stone or anything. I don't want to go anywhere else. I don't want to no. go into any other sport. Like I like doing this. I like being a part of growing the game. Yes. Um, and I was lucky because like when I started at the Guardian, I was um, just doing like layout and editing shifts and then writing for a few other places. And Anna Kessel, who has just left Sky Sports and was at Telegraph and was at Guardian prior, she was at Guardian and she was asked to recommend someone to write a weekly column on women's football. And she said, you've got Susie sitting over on the desk doing layout and she's writing for these other places. And so they got me in to do a weekly column from, that was 2017, just ahead of the women's Euros in 2017. And then that was just a weekly column and I was still doing shifts and working mm. elsewhere and all of that. And then by the 2019 World Cup, they got me on a full-time writing contract. And then a year and a half later-ish, I was on a star contract. And so like, the progression of the game has sort of gone hand in hand with my career development yeah. as a journalist, which has been really nice. And now uh, what's great is, I, you know, I was six, seven years at least as a freelancer doing it before I got a staff job at The Guardian. And now mm. we're hiring another full-time women's football writer, like Amazing. imminently. And that shows the progression of the game in a really like satisfying way. Yeah. And we get to do it properly as well, which really makes a difference. But yeah, it's just so great to cover. And they're such nice people as well. All the players are so intelligent. Yes. Because they've had to be, right? They've had to study and stuff. So, yeah. um, or work. So they're all like intelligent people and really great personalities and just so nice to like be around and deal with. It's why I'd never want to be an editor because then I'd be stuck at a desk instead of like out talking to them and interviewing them and stuff. But yeah, it's great. I think that's the brilliant thing about so many. Well, actually, I've not come across one of one female footballer yet that said <laughs> something stupid or that I've thought, "Oh, I don't like you." I seem to like all of them, but that is the brilliant thing because the game having this sort of coverage and being this popular is so new. They all care so much. 
Yeah. You know, they've got the time. They really care. They care about grassroots stuff. They care about the young women coming through. Um, I know that you did a book with Leah Williamson last year. Was it last year or the year before you have the power? Yeah, it was last year. And we like turned out in about three months. It was insane. (laughs) Yeah. And and she's been such a fantastic advocate for the sport and, you know, for, for women in all sports. What a great person for a young girl or boy to look up to because she's such a brilliant spokesperson and she's so yeah just inclusive and knowledgeable not just about football but it seems to be about sort of society as well what was it like working with her she really cares oh it's incredible so I've known her for a long time because you know obviously covered Arsenal Arsenal women's team for a long time so I've seen her from quite an early age what age was she when she started at Arsenal would you have seen really young she was in the academy um, from quite an early age but I don't think I saw her until she was like sort of 17 18 ish but um, girls on the ball who I know really well Sophie and Rachel they've watched her from like really early youth levels particularly with England because they've done 10 years home and away of England um, and most of the youth teams too so that their like knowledge is insane so what was really funny is they remember all of her big milestones they were like basically all her big England milestones from early youth age which is really cool but yeah she's like so nice to talk to because she is so just aware of her influence and using it for good and being a positive role model for people and it's you know it's not like she thinks that all footballers have to be role models it's that she wants to be like that she she enjoys that side of the game and like the book was I mean it was so much fun because it was it was it's aimed at sort of age nine to 14 year olds and my son was nine when I was writing it and he had had a little bit of like crisis of confidence at school and stuff Mm. when your your parent tells you you're great or whatever or oh, you know, you're doing this right or whatever it may be. They never quite believe you, right? It's always like, oh, that's my mum just trying to make me feel better. Yeah. And what was quite nice was when I was writing the book with Leah, it was, I was like, almost like pitching it at him a little bit. Um, how do we say this to a kid that is thinking the way he's thinking? Mm. And he read it and um, I didn't know, like I'd given it to him and I said, oh, you might want to read this at some point. And, uh, but I hadn't like pushed it on him or anything. And then I was sat in here in my little office at home and I just heard this mum, mum from the front room. I was like, oh, oh, I said, you've written the best book ever. <laughs> and he came through and he was crying his eyes out and he's like, it's me. It's all, it's everything I feel. And I was like, is there any particular bit? No, everything. And, it, and then he went back and he read the whole thing in one sitting of a couple of hours and like he said it really impacted him and it was just really nice because that was the aim right to Mm. have it to have kids feel less alone because it's someone they they know of talking about the issues they face without actually telling it to them so they're not it's not like they're trying to make them feel better they're talking about the issues that they have and they chime with what a young person's feeling about where they fit in the world and in school and all of those kind of things and friendship groups when it's someone saying something that isn't directly at you, but is the same as the way you're feeling it, you suddenly feel a little bit more validated. And so that was like really nice yeah. and really sweet. Yeah, because I remember that age being so isolating. Mm. And yeah, to have someone like Leah, who is so brilliant, to be the person going, well, I felt a bit like this. And exactly. I felt that hard. You go, oh, okay, maybe I'll be all right. Like she's so clever and brilliant yeah. at football and just, you know, all these wonderful things. But she struggled and that's like, yeah. you know, nice for anyone to see. You know, it's not that you want anyone to struggle. No, but, but, you know what I mean? Yeah, but the, the, 
the best people that you meet have always had a bit of drama, haven't they? Exactly. People, all the people that you want to go down the pub with, you're like, come on, I'll take my trauma, you take yours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Let's be mates. Let's share. Um, yeah, exactly. I met Leah at uh, the Attitude Awards last year and I, um, like, really, I was, like, really, like, I became about 12. Yeah. <laughs> Came about 12 and was like, can I have a photo with you, please? I've just recently got into, I'm really into the women's game. And I've got a podcast about the WSL and I just wanted to say, like, I just think you're brilliant. And my wife was just looking at me like, I've, I've never seen this version of you. I've never seen this. That she just could, my wife just couldn't stop laughing. She was beside herself messaging a WhatsApp group going, I, I just taking photos of me surreptitiously looking sort of quite panicked by being in front of Leah and Alex Scott. It's so hard, isn't it? Because like, yeah. I'm a journalist. So I have to go and interview them. And I'm like a fan yeah. of them all. And early on, the, I, it was it was more than a year before I actually said something to Alex Scott, despite the fact that I'd been in r- multiple rooms with her and like even sat on same tables with her at events and still hadn't said a word to her. And eventually there, there was something I was doing. I was just like, right, Alex, I'm not as rude as I seem. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just really, really starstruck. And so we've been at a lot of events, and I've never said hello because I love you, and you're, you were like one of my favourite players growing up, and that is why I'm not a complete psychopath who just has completely ignored you for the last year and a half or whatever it's been. And she found it so funny, and it was the same with Faye White as well. I'd like, you know, she was a hero growing up, and she'd been working for Arsenal and then there was a game and I'd just like, I'd not ever spoken to her because I was just too oh you white um, <laughs> and uh, and then I was sat next to her in a press box somewhere and so then exactly then I was like okay right force it out but now I'm okay now I can do it but yeah there were those moments early on where I was just like I can't talk to these people <laughs> yeah too special yeah no I I totally get that we've spoken <laughs> about it before on the pod where I say I I don't know if you're a similar age to me. I'm I'm 38 and so... 37. Right, okay. So to me, they feel a bit like the Spice Girls. Like I feel <laughs> yes. a bit like, oh my God, these girls, they're so cool. I want to be friends with them all. But like the Spice Girls and they're down the road and you can go and see yeah, them. Exactly. Which is yeah. like mad, right? Yeah. That is the accessible yeah. bit. It's, you know, that we were totally. talking about earlier. Like it's, it's like having... The, that is what it's like. It's like having the Spice Girls available to pop down the road to and, and like get a signature from and shake hands with or whatever I have a photo with which is mind-blowing totally I was wondering if I could get your take on Emma Hayes leaving to go to America because obviously she's been an enormous force within the game and obviously you know Chelsea have dominated for for some (laughs) time I mean I don't want to hear your opinion as an Arsenal fan (laughs) (laughs) but you know have you got thoughts about her going like have you ever met her like I yeah, Please. I met her loads and yeah, I right love there. her. Yeah, right. and yeah, I bet. I'm I bet. so devastated. There's a book that was sort of, uh, it was Women in Football and uh, like ran this competition because um, they were creating an anthology of women's football with this publishing company called Flood, Floodlight Dreams mm-hmm. or Floodlit Dreams. So they wanted chapters for this book on, on women's football. And they asked me to do one uh, because like half of them were like pre-selected and then half of them were like the competition entries. Mm. So I did mine on Emma Hayes because I'd done a massive profile of her ahead of the Champions League final when Chelsea were in it and lost 4-0 to Barcelona um, very horribly. Um, but yeah, so I'd done this big profile on her in The Guardian and then I sort of did an expanded version of that because it, like, it was so good a piece for the book. And it's like, I spoke to her dad, her sisters, 
players that she had coached at like when she was in the US uh, mm. like as a, in her early days players she had coached at Arsenal when she was there as assistant obviously people at Chelsea and it was just so nice and it was very much like the chapter of the book is I think what did I call it a, a state of mind or something like that because it's because mm. she came from a council state in Camden and it's like I was very much talking about like working class involvement in sport and yeah. what that means and what it what it's like to come from a council estate and take that community family mindset into being a manager and stuff so I was like very much like because she talks about it quite a lot using that to talk about her s- story and her story's mm. mad like it's so cool she's done so many cool things and she speaks Spanish and things like that that people just don't know and has you know been in America speaking at coaching courses where like the cues to get into hers are longer than the cues to get into Jose Mourinho's and things like that. Yeah. That's one of the things her dad told me. Amazing. She's such a loss. I'm just so devastated because, yeah. I mean, like, not just because of obviously being like one of the best managers, if not the best manager in the world, but also like the, the fact that she's just so outspoken on stuff and like so open and honest and will speak her mind for the good of the game and it's going to be such a loss journalistically for us because she's just yeah. so easy to work with and like write with and she really trusts us as well like you know she'll sit after you know press conferences are finished and just chat off the record with us for ages and she just trusts us you know that we're not going to go and write whatever she said yeah. down and stuff and there's just a like real nice relationship there between her and the media in a way that we've not really got with anyone else there's always a yeah. little bit of a like distrust there but she's just so confident in herself and what she wants to do and what she wants to say and how she wants to be portrayed and what she thinks should happen to the women's game that yeah I'm just she's going to go and win the World Cup with the US I'm going to be really annoyed listen please please (laughs) we've got Serena we've got Serena we've got Serena (laughs) but I mean yeah it's uh yeah pretty pretty heartbreaking any 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 idea who you think will take over I don't know. I mean, I've heard a few rumours. There's one Icelandic coach that I think the Times linked to the job. I did think Mark Parsons, who um, managed the Netherlands, didn't quite work out from there, but he was um, in the States before that. I thought he might end up there, but I think like they made it quite clear they want to hire a woman. So yeah. the pool of like high-quality female managers is quite small. In fact, the pool of managers in women's football generally is quite small. You end up getting a lot of people who I think fail upwards a little bit too much in the game yes yeah um, which is a bit frustrating um While we're on that what did you think about melissa phillips getting the heave ho i was really surprised more just for the timing of it and stuff yeah i thought it was really short-sighted yeah i mean that's it she'd only been in the job nine months and they'd had like what nine yeah or more signings in the summer or something like that and you're asking like a lot to gel a team together like that and when I spoke to the club, it was very much they emphasised what they said in the statement were like performances and results were particularly performances weren't matching the like investment. And I was looking at the players, and yeah, there's some good players that were signed, but Vicky Lasada, it's like you know she's not that young anymore. She's nearing the end of her career. Yeah. Then you've got players like Sophie Bagley, who I think is brilliant, but had been like second choice keeper and wasn't really playing much so you know wasn't necessarily proven then Maria Forrest-Dottier hadn't impressed that much at Chelsea or at um, Man United so like good players but it's not like they're just going to slot in straight away gel together and be brilliant straight away so I was a little bit like this yeah like you're saying feels like quite short-sighted and like I would have liked to see her get to at least the end of the season but I think it's the way it's going because every result matters because the league is so small. There's mm. so few games that means every point matters that 
it, I think it's going to happen more often. But I think it's yeah. It makes me wonder whether they've got someone else lined up already, and that was yeah. why because just the manner of it as well felt really weird that it came on men's transfer deadline day she'd done the press conference in the morning and then like a few hours later was gone yeah and it was just like oh that's all coincidental and I was just like well no because if it was like if you if it was results and you wanted to get rid of her why wouldn't you have like organized that at a time when it was like yeah more convenient for you to do so rather than on men's transfer deadline day and things so it's just all a bit weird and I don't know why yeah we were at the Chelsea match and it was very few teams win against Chelsea at the moment. but So I, I think it was slightly harsh to judge her on that one. But I thought the performance wasn't that bad as well. No, and, and honestly, in the first half, yeah. I was, I mean, I was obviously rooting for Brighton, but I was, you know, I was pleasantly surprised. I was like, yeah. we've got quite good possession here. This is, we've got a few shots near the target. <laughs> There's a couple <laughs> that like, you know, were out in the car park as well. But it, it didn't feel like we were thrashed. No, exactly. Yeah, I felt the same watching it. It's a shame. I wonder, just quickly, I know we've already gone way over how much time I asked from you. I'm sorry for that. But I saw a little while ago um, Emma Hay saying about, you know, whether there should be more clubs in the WSL. And you just saying there about, you know, how every result matters so much. Mm. What would your thoughts be as someone that sort of has such a forensic look at the game like how would you feel about it being bigger do you think it is a problem how small it is yeah I think it is I I kind of understand why it is at the same time but like in my like so I am you know like I say quite left wing so I'm very much like blow it all up and start again a little bit Mm. um so I'd like I'd like like I think merge the Women's Super League Women's Championship and by the Giant League and I would have like the investment flip so you know like the broadcast money is at the moment it's um, the investment into the leagues is 75% weighted towards the Women's Super League and 25% to the championship. And in my mind, like that's just an ever growing gap because you've always got more money going to the top uh, yes. 12 teams and less money going to the bottom. So you're basically in building a gap that is just going to constantly get bigger indefinitely because they're unlikely to shift that percentage. But even 50 50, there's still a gap because the WSL is starting from a higher starting point. So in my mind, I would like blow it all up and have 75% going to championship, 25% to the women's Super League clubs and try and actually bring those levels together. But those the clubs are never going to sign up for something like that because obviously it jeopardises their potential dominance, particularly the big ones in the women's Super mm. League. And they, they would also argue that, oh, well, we're rewarding some of the teams that aren't investing as much and blah, blah, blah. But I think, you know, sometimes you need that, to drive their investment right like for them to see a bit of an incentive to do it and they've done that in other circumstances like letting Man United jump into the championship from when they were launched Mm. or Spurs get a license for the Women's Super League before they were promoted and all those kind of things but you know there's just one rule for some things and a different rule for others and yeah for me I just I just really want to see it not become a mini Premier League yeah because I get the like, oh, a billion pound women's super league would be so great and blah, blah. But I'm just like, really? Would it? Like a billion pounds is a lot of money. What what happens to that? Like, let's get into the nitty gritty. If that's going into grassroots football and into girls football and going into schools and all of those kind of things, then great. If it's just going into the pockets of some of the biggest clubs in the game that are just kind of seeing it as an opportunity because they've saturated men's football so much yes. and they've squeezed every penny out of it that they're going, oh, women's football might be the next place we can squeeze a bit more money out of. Then, then I don't really want it to be a billion pound industry but you know if it's being done differently if everything's being thought of differently then yeah okay let's, let's do that but 
my fear is is that we're just on this like sailing down the road towards a Premier League Mark II and that is what it's going to end up with but yeah I would rip up the script in so many ways and burn down FIFA and all of those kind of things if I had the chance okay so if (laughs) if we find out there's been a fire you know where to come (laughs) yeah yeah this is my confession (laughs) (laughs) right I'm gonna ask you one more question I hope that's okay if you had to have uh, a lioness to organize your hen do who would you choose Oh, that is so difficult. Oh. I've gone Zellum. Oh, God, you can do a good party. I've heard that. Oh, have I've you? heard oh, that. Oh, you've she, got the insight. She's I love really it. so one of the, I can't remember who it was, but one of the players, uh, Ella Toon, she was, it was, it was a, like a YouTube clip or something where they were out in Australia and they were organizing the days out. And when Tooney takes them out for a day out, it's just like random. Wherever they end up, they end up. But <laughs> Zellum, it's like planned. She knows what they're doing when. She's got, you know, they're, they're going to this place and they're going to this place. They'll get all the science in. They'll have it like done. So she is efficient. Whereas if you go for someone like Ella Toon and you're basically going to have a mad time. So, you know, there's the two different. I mean, Mary Irks is sort of like an obvious one, right? Because yeah. she'd surely, surely be ridiculously fun. But my favourite players are the really serious ones, but I don't think they'd be good for a head night. So, yeah, I'm going to go Mary Earps. Okay. <laughs> good choice, though. Zenham's a good choice. We have to end on the on the most important question, <laughs> the real reason that I brought you here. Thank oh, yeah. you so much for giving me your time. I am loving your book. I highly recommend that all the listeners go out and buy a copy because if you enjoy uh, Big Kick Energy, you will definitely be fascinated by this book. And, uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. The brilliant Suzanne Rack there. And just to let you know, again, the book is called A Woman's Game, The Rise, Fall and Rise Again of Women's Football. Suzanne also writes for The Guardian. There's loads of stuff on there, really brilliant insight into football and especially uh, great articles about the women's game. So please have a look. She's also written that book with Leah and she's also on the weekly Guardian Women's Football podcast as well. Right, that's pretty much all from your friend Pacey this week. But what have we got to look forward to? Hooray, the WSL returns next weekend on Friday the 16th of February. Chelsea will play Man City. I mean, Man City are looking good. Man City are looking good. And I know Chelsea are often undeniable with the Queen Emma Hayes at the helm, but I'm not going to bet my lunch money on it. There, I've said it. Arsenal are going to play Manchester United on Saturday. I am going to be at that game. There's rumours of me doing something pitch side at half time. I won't call it the interval because they might ask me to leave. What's happening on Sunday? We've got Brighton and Hove versus Liverpool, Everton, West Ham, Tottenham Hotspur, Aston Villa and Leicester versus Bristol City. I'm hopeful for Brighton. Let's say they're going to win. Let's say it's going to be 1-0 to Brighton. That's the hope. Right. That's a wrap. I'm sorry that my dear Goosey wasn't here this week. I hope that you don't mind that it was just me, but we thought we'd sooner put out an episode. We'd sooner give you something. Uh, please email us. Our email is bigkickenergypod at gmail.com and also follow us on Instagram. It's at bigkickenergypod. So as you may know, we might have mentioned we're doing a couple of shows around and about the place. The uh, the northern ones are going to be on sale very, very soon. It's not just the north. I think we've got some dates coming up in the Midlands as well. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Next week, we have two shows in London. The show on the 20th is sold out, but there is still a handful of tickets left on the 19th. Signature Brew, Black Horse Road, Big Kick Energy Live. And then on the 27th, we are at the Comedia in Brighton. Once again, there's just a handful of tickets left there. So go on the Instagram, Google it. 
you know how to find tickets just find the tickets but please come along uh Maisie and i will both be back next week in the meantime please listen share like subscribe and you're always welcome to come and say hello see you next time 